ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so in the previous lessons we looked at the name Allah and we also looked at the name Ar-Rabb and today we look at some more of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the first of them Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim these are two names from the names of Allah and you come across them very often every time you pray every time you recite al-fatiha alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin ar-rahman ar-rahim ar-rahman ar-rahim there are the two names of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in surah al-fatiha in every raka'ah that you pray, in every prayer. And these two names, they have been mentioned in the Qur'an a lot. The names Ar-Rahman and the name Ar-Rahim, they have been mentioned in the Qur'an a lot. And there are lots of different examples. Ar-Rahmanu ala al-Arsh istawa. Ar-Rahman, in this ayah, mentioning that he rose above the throne, as is our aqidah, the aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is above the Most High. When you say, Allah ta'ala, ta'ala, the one who is above the Most High. Allah is above His creation. Allah is the mighty and majestic, above this creation. And we do not say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is everywhere mixed in with His creation. Allah, His knowledge, and his hearing and his seeing obviously covers everything. But that does not mean you say Allah is everywhere. That he in his essence is everywhere and mixed in with his creation. That is incorrect. Allah is above. As he mentioned in this ayah. He is above the throne. The throne is at the top of all of the creation. And then Allah is above that, above all of the creation. (coughs) So Allah in His might and majesty and lordship is above all of the creation. بَائِنٌ عَنْ خَلْقِهِ Separate from his creation. Not like some of the different people out there in their different misunderstandings of either Islam or on other religions when they believe Allah and the creation are all one entity. The creator and the creation are all one It is not like that. Allah is above the creation, separate and distinct from the creation. And the creation we are here. And this is something known from the evidences of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. It is something known from the statements of the Salaf. In fact, Al-Imam Abu Hanifa. Rahimahullah Ta'ala mentioned about Allah being above. Al-Imam Abu Hanifa mentioned about Allah being above, not Allah being everywhere. 
in one of his books or attributed to him Al-Fiqh Al-Akbar and maybe other places it is quoted from Al-Imam Abu Hanifa that he said لَيْسَ مِنْ وَصْفِ الْأُلُوهِيَّةِ Words close to that. That it is not from the uluhiyah of Allah, your worship to Allah. It is not befitting in that, that when you make dua, that when you make dua, you make it downwards. That is not befitting, Imam Abu Hanifa said. Why would it not be befitting when you make dua that you put your hands down and make dua? Does anybody put their hands down and make dua? You put your hands up when you make dua. Al-Imam Abu Hanifa said it would not be appropriate or correct for you to put your hands down when making dua because Allah is above. So you raise your hands. You raise your hands in making the dua. And that is from Al-Imam Abu Hanifa. So everybody should think carefully about these things. There are people who say they follow the madhab of Al-Imam Abu Hanifa, that they are Hanafi. But then in that case, they should follow the Aqeedah. And the statements of Al-Imam Abu Hanifa in Aqeedah, Al-Imam Abu Hanifa is mentioning that Allah is above. By saying that when you make dua, you don't make it down, you make it up, above to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there are many other evidences highlighting this also. The scholars have even mentioned, even if you didn't know any of the evidences from the Qur'an and the Sunnah, even if you didn't know any of them, logically a servant, a, a, a person, Logically, from your intelligence, you can work out that Allah is above. How? The scholars, they mention, in relation to you, there are three positions. Wherever you are, there are three positions in relation to yourself. Either somebody else can be <coughs> level to you. Somebody could be sitting on a chair in front of me. They are now... Level with me, at the same level. Somebody could be sitting on the floor compared to me, so they are below me in the level right now, physically. Or somebody could be on some large chair or on a second floor, so they are now above me. So you can have somebody maybe below you physically, at the same level as you physically, or above you. For someone of respect, your father for example, would you sit in a position and make him sit in a position below you? Definitely not. Talking about respect now, for example, with the kings and the leaders, they sit in their offices and rooms, maybe on an elevated position, and everybody else comes and sits on the sofas that are generally a little bit lower than them maybe in the way that the room is organized. You wouldn't even really sit level with them. You have a king or some superior leader, maybe in the olden days especially, that they would be sitting above. You wouldn't even sit level with them because of their status and what they are compared to you, a common man. So... From those three positions, being below is obviously not a position of respect. Being equal, okay, but not with somebody who is superior to you. Someone who's superior to you is above you. So now, from those three possible positions, below, level, or above, what are you going to say about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala compared to you? The below position, impossible. Equal to you? Impossible. The only thing logically with your intelligence, let alone the evidence of you if you don't know them, is that Allah is of course above you. Cannot be that equal, same. 
or below. Impossible those two positions. Allah must be above you. That's just from the logic the scholars have mentioned, let alone when you start seeing all the ayat. So we know that our Creator Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala must be above. And when people they say, no but Allah is everywhere. Then the scholars have said, when you start saying things like that, it becomes very dangerous. One, because you're going against all of the ayat in the Qur'an telling us Allah is above anyway. But then on top of that, if you say Allah is everywhere, then you have so many places in this world that are dirty places, that even you wouldn't want to go to those places. The garbage, the, the recycling centers and the rubbish dumps and all types of places. How can you say Allah is everywhere? Then they'll say, oh no, but not that place. Then you have all the bathrooms and the toilets. Not that place. You have all of the, the pigsty. And whether pigs and animals, no, not that place. You can make a thousand exceptions. So then what do you mean Allah is everywhere? So this doesn't conform with intellect, let alone the clear ayat and evidences in the Qur'an regarding Allah being above the creation. So here, <coughs> one example there. rahmanu ala al-arsh istawa. That Ar-Rahman, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the merciful, He rose above His throne. And there are other examples also. رَبِّ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَمَا بَيْنَهُمَا الرَّحْمَانِ Ar-Rahman again in Surah Al-Naba' Juz Amma, everybody will know that. Also in Ar-Rahman, Surah Ar-Rahman. Ar-Rahman عَلَّمَ الْقُرْآنِ Ar-Rahman. So there are many examples in the Qur'an. It is mentioned many times this name of Allah, Ar-Rahman. And quite often one of the things you will notice about the name of Allah, Ar-Rahman, that it comes together with the name Ar-Rahim. Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim, they are two names that often come together. With regards to the name Ar-Rahim and Ar-Rahman, both of them indicate generally the issue of mercy. That Allah has the attribute of mercy and Allah is the merciful one. But they say, of course there is a slight difference between Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim. One of those they mention is that Ar-Rahim then that is a name where the attribute is something which is applicable to the believers specifically. And you notice in the Qur'an when the name Ar-Rahim is mentioned, it is mentioned specifically to the believers. For example, in Al-Ahzab 43, Allah says, وَكَانَ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ رَحِيمًا and that Allah is Rahim to the believers. And so it has been said that Ar-Rahman indicates of course Allah is the merciful. Ar-Rahman in Arabic upon the pattern of Fa'lan indicates Mubalaha. That Allah isn't just merciful but He is the one who is complete and full and a great amount of mercy. A great amount of mercy. And so that mercy encompasses everyone. It encompasses the believers and the disbelievers. The general mercy of Allah encompasses everyone. Even the disbelievers. It is by the mercy of Allah that they can breathe and eat and have clothes and homes. So there is a general mercy of Allah in that way to everyone. And then there is a specific mercy of Allah for the believers. And it has been said that this is the mercy that Allah shows the believers on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. That on that day the disbelievers, they will be in hellfire. But the mercy, by the mercy of Allah, 
that Allah is Ar-Rahim, by the mercy of Allah, the believers will enter paradise. وَلِهَذَيْنِ الْإِسْمَيْنِ شَأْنٌ كَبِيرٌ وَمَكَانَ عَظِيمَةٌ فَهُمَ الْإِسْمَانِ اللَّذَانِ افْتَتَحَ اللَّهُ بِهِمَا أُمَّ الْقُرْآنِ وَجَعَلَهُمَا عُنْوَانَ مَا أَنْزَلَهُ مِنَ الْهُدَى وَالْبَيَانِ وَضَمَّنَهُمَا الْكَلِمَةَ الَّتِي لَا يَثْبُتُ لَهَا شَيْطَانٌ وَافْتَتَحَ بِهَا كِتَابَهُ نَبِيُّ اللَّهِ سُلَيْمَانَ عَلَيْهِ السَّلَامُ وَكَانَ جِبْرِيلُ يَنْزِلُ بِهَا عَلَى النَّبِيِّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ عِنْدَ افْتِتَاحِ كُلِّ سُورَةٍ مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ These two names are mentioned in lots of different places. One of those we already mentioned right at the beginning of the Qur'an, at the beginning of Al-Fatiha, the other, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, right at the beginning you see them there. Similarly, so that is an indication, an indication that at the beginning of the Qur'an they have come as a title and as a Introduction to everything in the Qur'an. They are there at the beginning of the Qur'an. And also, they are mentioned, uh, for example, when Sulaiman wrote his letter to who? Queen of Sheba, as they say. Then he began it with that statement and the mentioning of the names of Allah at the start. And there are other examples also given when Jibreel used to come with the revelation, etc. So these are two names that are mentioned often and they are mentioned in many places. وَقَدْ وَرَدَ هَذَانَ الْإِسْمَانِ هَذَانِ الْإِسْمَانِ مُقْتَرِنَيْنِ فِي عِدَّةِ مَوَاضِعِ مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ so both of these names, they have come together in many places in the Qur'an. Uh, and there are differences that the scholars have mentioned. And there are different explanations regarding Ar-Rahman and regarding Ar-Rahim. One of them we just mentioned briefly there, that Ar-Rahim is specific, a mercy specific to the believers. And Ar-Rahman indicating a general mercy, that is just one explanation. And there are other explanations regarding the differences between the two of them. There are examples in the Qur'an, in the Sunnah, talking about the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So for example, in the Hadith, it mentions, إِنَّ لِلَّهِ مِئَةَ رَحْمَةً أَنْزَلَ مِنْهَا رَحْمَةً وَاحِدَةً بَيْنَ الْجِنِّ وَالْإِنسِ وَالْبَهَائِمُ وَالْهَوَةً فَبِهَا يَتَعَاطَفُونَ وَبِهَا يَتَرَاحَمُونَ وَبِهَا تَعَطُفُ الْوَحْشَ عَلَى وَلَدِهَا وَأَخَّرَ اللَّهُ تِسْعًا وَتِسْعِينَ رَحْمًا يَرْحَمُ بِهَا عِبَادَهُ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ In this hadith which is in Al-Bukhari and Muslim, the Prophet wasallam told us that Allah gave to us one mercy. One mercy from a hundred, only one piece was given to this creation. That mercy that was given to us, that one mercy out of a hundred, that mercy is what you see between the people, between their parents to their children, between the animals to their children. The mercy that you see then that is from that mercy that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala descended upon us. And He kept 99 parts of that mercy to show the mercy to the believers on Yawmul Qiyamah. 99 parts of that mercy that He has upon the believers, upon His servants on Yawmul Qiyamah. And that's why the scholars have said the believers, they are shown the mercy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on that day.
in another ayah, or in an ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned, وَرَحْمَتِي وَسِعَتْ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ That my mercy, it encompasses everything. My mercy encompasses everything. And that's why the scholars, they mention with various affairs, various topics linked back to the mercy of Allah. For example, a person who is a sinner, he has done much wrong, a lot of sins and errors and mistakes, but he should not lose hope in the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. لَا تَقْنَطُوا مِنْ رَحْمَةِ اللَّهِ Do not become despondent, lose hope, and become depressed regarding the mercy of Allah, thinking that you cannot get the mercy of Allah anymore, that your sins are too great, your wrongs are too great, and that you cannot be shown mercy. No, that kind of thinking is the shaitan whispering to a person that you have done too much wrong and you cannot repent now. That is from the shaitan's whisperings to a person. A person could have even committed the most major sin, which is shirk, major shirk, kafir, mushrik. And yet if he repents and accepts Islam, is he forgiven or not? Forgiven. So a person, if he commits a sin or an error, a Muslim, you're all Muslim already, and now you make some sin or error, even a major sin, then the person does not lose hope in the mercy of Allah. Rather, he knows that Allah is the one who loves to forgive, and the best of the servants are the ones who repent from their errors. كُلُّ بَنِي آدَمْ وَخَيْرُ الْخَطَّائِينَ التَّوَّابُونَ All of the servants of Adam, all of the sons of Adam, all of the people, they make error, they fall into sin, but the best of them, from the ones who fall into error and sin, the best of them are the ones who repent. They repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the wrong that they've fallen into, for the error that they've made, for the sin that they've committed. They repent. Khayrukum, the best of you are the tawwabun, the ones who repent from their errors and their sins. Similarly, Allah mentioned in the hadith Qudsi, everybody knows. Kullukum tukhti'una billayli wa nahar. وَأَنَا أَغْهِرُ الذُّنُوبَ جَمِيعًا أَغْهِرْ لَكُمْ When Allah said, all of you, you fall into sin day and night, you fall into error day and night, but I am the one who forgives, so seek your forgiveness from me. So the fact that a person falls into error occurs. But the difference then is between the people who fall into errors and sins, the difference between them is some will repent and seek forgiveness from Allah for that error and that sin and return back to the obedience of Allah. And others will not. And they persist upon their wrong or they are convinced by the shaitan that you cannot be forgiven. And so they do not repent and return back to Allah. And that's why Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullahu ta'ala mentioned that there are wisdoms, <coughs> wisdoms, even in this issue of committing sins. A person might say, Allah decreed everything. Then why did Allah decree we commit sins? One of the reasons or wisdoms why Allah decreed or allowed that to occur by the choices you make is because a person when he commits a sin, that is obviously incorrect and wrong and a disobedience. But 
After that, depending on how a person behaves, this act that he fell into from his weakness, he can turn it around afterwards into a positive by sincerely repenting to Allah for it and never returning to it, by recognizing his weakness and humbleness before Allah, that he is just a small servant of Allah, a weak servant of Allah, who falls into these errors and sins, and so he returns back in seeking forgiveness sincerely. So those kinds of emotions that arise from an individual and actions that arise from an individual after he may have from his weakness fallen into a sin they become positives for that person as for the one who continues upon disobedience and does not repent then that individual is the one in loss or the one who is convinced by the shaitan there's no point you seeking forgiveness It's like the story of the man who killed 99 men. And then he went to an individual who was an abid, a worshipper, but he was not an alim, a person of knowledge. He went to him and said, is there any repentance for me? He said, 99 people you killed, there is no repentance for you now. And so he said, in that case, I'll kill you too then. And he made a hundred, no repentance. But then of course, when he went to the alim, he discovered there is forgiveness for that person. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives the one who seeks that forgiveness and repents in the last third of the night, every night. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala descends to the lowest heaven and says one of the things, مَنْ يَسْتَغْفِرُنِي فَأَغْفِرَ لَهُ Who is seeking forgiveness from me and I will forgive him. So now that we have understood a little bit about the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the question obviously is how do we achieve the mercy of Allah? How can we achieve the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And there are some ayat in the Qur'an where Allah has informed us of who receives His mercy. So think about this very carefully. Who are the servants who receive the mercy of Allah? In one ayah, An-Nur 56, وَأَقِيمُوا الصَّلَاةَ وَآتُوا الزَّكَاةَ وَأَطِيعُوا الرَّسُولَ لَعَلَّكُمْ تُرْحَمُونَ And establish the prayer, Allah says, and give the zakat, and obey the messenger, 
so that you may be shown mercy. Establish the prayer, give the zakat, obey the messenger, so that you may be shown mercy. These are very clear points. It mentions there the establishment of the prayer. The establishment of the prayer, the iqamatu salah, or iqamu salah, it does not just mean praying five times a day. In the ayat where it says, وَأَقِيمُ الصَّلَاةَ It doesn't just mean pray five times a day. What does it mean then? Not necessarily extra salah, because if somebody prays the obligatory fard prayers every day, then that is the minimum acceptable. But there's something else about them, which causes them to be established. There's a difference between praying the prayers and establishing the prayers. Praying it on time. <coughs> That's one of them. So when it says, أَقِيمُ salah establish the prayer, then it doesn't just mean pray, it means pray properly. Make your wudu properly before the prayer. Pray it in the proper time of the prayer. Pray it in the congregation for the men. Pray it with all of the arkan and wajibat and sunan. Pray that prayer in the proper way. The wudu, the time, the sunan, the arkan, the wajibat, do it all as the Messenger did. Sallu kama usalli. Pray as you have seen me pray. That is establishing the prayer. So that is one of the characteristics for achieving the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that a person establishes the prayers. And this is a key point, absolutely vital. Some of the scholars, well, the five pillars of Islam, the first one is the shahada la ilaha illallah. If you do not do that, you don't do the shahada, you reject the shahada, then obviously you are not Muslim. The second pillar of Islam is the prayer. If you don't do the prayer, you accept it, you believe in the prayer you're supposed to pray, but you don't do it. Then are you Muslim or not? See, now there's a difference, and there are many scholars who say that in that situation, you could be deemed as a non-Muslim. A person who abandons the prayer, he believes in it, but he abandons it. Because if he doesn't believe in it in the first place, he rejects it, then there's no difference of opinion. He is a kafir. If you reject the prayer, you reject the five daily prayers, kafir. But somebody who doesn't reject them, accepts them, but simply abandons them. Some scholars have said he would be considered a disbeliever. The Prophet ﷺ told us, that the covenant, the barrier between us and them is the prayer. Between the believers and the non-believers is the prayer. So whomsoever abandons the prayer, then the Prophet said, فَقَدْ كَفَرَ Then he has disbelieved. In another version, فَقَدْ أَشْرَكَ He has committed shirk. So many of the scholars have mentioned the vital importance of the five daily prayers. And يَوْمُ qiyamah, From all of your actions, the first thing you will be asked about is the prayer. إِنَّ أَوَّلَ مَا يُسْأَلُ عَنْهَا الْعَبْدِ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ الصَّلَةِ The first thing that a servant is asked about on the Day of Judgment from your actions will be about your action of the prayer. If you've established your prayers, then you expect, inshallah, the rest of your religion to be reasonable and good. 
But if you do not even establish your prayers, then what do you expect of the rest of your religion? What do you expect from a person who abandons his five daily prayers in terms of the rest of his religion? He cannot even implement the second pillar yet. That's why the scholars have said how crucial this point is. The establishment of the five daily prayers. And it is not something for anyone to become slack with. You remember the story regarding the magician. <coughs> there was an individual, true story. There was an individual and his neighbor was a magician. And this individual used to see some of the things his neighbor used to do. Magic, magic things, real magic his neighbor used to do. So one day this individual was a simple man, a commoner. But he'd been raised in a good way by his parents. He prayed, prayed his five prayers every day, but just a commoner, otherwise no knowledge. But he went to the neighbor, not really knowing about these things and not knowing any knowledge about these affairs. He said, I want to be a magician like you. I want to be able to do all these things you do. So that magician said to him, go to a particular lake at Maghrib time. And you'll get your instructions there. So he went. This individual followed the instructions from his neighbor who's the magician. Went to that lake at Maghrib time just when the sun was going down. And as it went down it is mentioned some of the fish came from the lake. Some entity from the lake of this nature and spoke to him. To give him his next instructions how to become a magician. He said to him, <clears throat> the first thing you need to do, if you want to proceed and become a magician, we'll take you through the steps. The first step right now is that you need to miss the Maghrib prayer. Right now is Maghrib time. Miss the Maghrib prayer, you can't pray it. Miss the Maghrib, abandon your Maghrib prayer, then we get to the next step. First thing, abandon the prayer, they tell him. The shayateen of the jinn, the magicians, working with them. Upon kufr, a magician cannot be a magician except that he commits kufr. First thing they said to him, you want to do magic and be a magician? Abandon your prayer. The man says, the story was narrated by a, a chain from the man himself. He said, when I heard them say that to me, abandon your prayer, even though he was miskeen, common and didn't have any knowledge, but he'd been raised up upon Praying, his parents had always taught him to pray five times a day. He didn't know anything else, didn't know about magic and these things, and it's haram. But the prayer, he'd been brought up upon the prayer, tarbiyah. He said, as soon as I heard them say, abandon your prayer, he said, that's it, I got scared straight away, I knew that was wrong, and he ran away. <laughs> he knew it was wrong, abandon the prayer. What are you talking about, abandon the prayer? He knew that was wrong, and he said he ran away straight away. So, this prayer is the key. Even the shayateen of the jinn, the first thing they want, abandon your prayer. Abandon your prayer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Abandon the worship of Allah and prostrate to them and do whatever they request from them. <coughs> so here it says, if you want the mercy of Allah, the first characteristic, establish the five daily prayers. The second one, it mentions the giving of the zakat. The zakat, as you know, with the conditions, if you have the certain amount of wealth, and a year has gone by on that wealth, to give the amount necessary from your wealth, which is then given to the various different locations, or, or the various different recipients of that zakat, from amongst them the poor and the needy. And the zakat which you have to give every year, 2.5%, from the wealth, then that type of zakat you have to give, when it is due, when it becomes due, let's say for example, many people, Ramadan to Ramadan, they work it out. So when it gets to next Ramadan, and you work out your wealth, and you've got the money, you've had the wealth for a year, 2.5% is due upon you. Now the scholars have mentioned that 2.5% is no longer your wealth. If you keep it in your account, 
you are keeping money which isn't yours anymore. It's not your money anymore, that 2.5%. It's not your wealth anymore. You have to give it, and it has to go to the recipients who it is deserving of now. By you keeping it and not giving it, it's like you've stolen. It's like you've stolen that 2.5% and you're keeping it. It's not yours anymore. Zakat is due. You have to give that now. It's not yours anymore. Give that and it purifies your wealth and increases your wealth. And so this is the zakat and there are rulings and fiqh and ahkam of the zakat. Uh, So that is the second point mentioned there for the mercy of Allah. And the third point, which is the general point, You want the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then obey the messenger. Meaning, in the general sense of everything, follow all of the commandments, stay away from all of the prohibitions, do the halal, stay away from the haram. That is obedience to the messenger of Allah. Just like the Prophet said, مَا أَمَرْتُكُمْ بِهِ فَأْتُمْ مِنْهُمْ أَسْتَلَعْتُمْ وَمَا نَهَيْتُكُمْ عَنْهُ فَاشْتَنِبُهُ That which I have commanded you with, then do as much as you are able. Everything I've told you to do and commanded you. And that which I have prohibited you from, then stay away from it. That which I prohibited you from, then stay away from it. وَمَا آتَاكُمُ الرَّسُولُ فَخُضُوهُ Allah told us in the Qur'an, that which the Messenger has given you, then take it. Implement the Sunnah. تَرَكْتُ فِيكُمْ شَيْئَيْنْ مَا إِنْ تَمَسَّكْتُمْ بِهِمَا لَنْ تَذِلُّوا بَعْدِي كِتَابَ اللَّهِ وَسُنَّتِي How come I call that I've left two things behind? As long as you cling on to them, you will not go astray. The book of Allah and my Sunnah. عَلَيْكُمْ بِسُنَّتِي Upon you is to cling to my Sunnah. This is the revelation, the Qur'an and the Sunnah. A believer who sticks to them. What is halal, he does. What is haram, he stays away. Sticks to them and clings to them. Then that is a means of achieving and receiving the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In one more ayah, Al-An'am 155, Allah mentions, <coughs> وَهَذَا كِتَابٌ أَنزَلْنَاهُ مُبَارَكٌ This is the book that we have revealed, a blessed book. فَاتَّبِعُوهُ So follow it. وَاتَّقُوا لَعَلَّكُمْ تُرْحَمُونَ And have taqwa. Fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Fulfill the commandments desiring the reward of paradise. And stay away from the haram, fearing the punishment of Allah. That's taqwa. Have taqwa so that you may achieve or receive the mercy of Allah. And similarly in Al-Araf 56, إِنَّ رَحْمَةَ اللَّهِ قَرِيبٌ مِّنَ الْمُحْسِنِينَ Indeed the mercy of Allah is close to the good doers. It is close to the righteous. The righteous, the good doers. They are the ones who receive the mercy of Allah. And then there is the hadith, the famous hadith regarding the love and the mercy between a mother and her child. How much and how strong is the mercy of a mother to her child? That the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is greater than that to his servants. The mercy of Allah is greater than that than that which you even see of the strength of the mercy of a mother to her child, the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is greater than that. Arhamur Rahimin, the most merciful. And that's why on the day of judgment, when all of the intercession has been done, when the believers have interceded for their brothers and sisters, and the angels have interceded, everyone, all the intercession is done. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, now they've all interceded and now nothing remains except from Arhamur Rahimin, 
except from the most merciful of the merciful now. Now all that remains is the mercy from the most merciful of the merciful. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that is the chapter briefly talking about the names of Allah, Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim. Next time, insha'Allah ta'ala, we'll have a look at the names Al-Hayyu Al-Qayyum, which you come across all the time. Allahu la ilaha illa huwa Al-Hayyu Al-Qayyum. Everybody knows that. So insha'Allah ta'ala, next time we'll have a look at those two names. Any questions or anything else to add up to that? If two countries have taken territory from you, two countries have taken territory from your country? No, but the question is not clear. So you're saying there is a country, and other countries took part of this country and gave it to others? Yeah. Uh huh. You cannot just take a war to those countries. When it comes to those types of uh, issues of jihad and these kinds of things, no, Azerbaijan, Allah, I know what the situation is right now. But if you're talking about that general principle, firstly, jihad, when it comes into these kinds of topics, jihad is not done for land. It is not done for land. Even if it's yours, jihad isn't done for land. It is done for the sake of raising kalimatu la ilaha illallah. Jihad is for the sake of Allah, for raising the banner of la ilaha illallah. Not for political reasons, not for economic reasons, not for uh, uh, territorial reasons. Territory, if it's the kuffar that have taken it, then you're taking it back to raise the banner of la ilaha illallah. But other disputes that occur and other issues that occur, generally, Allah alam the specifics, but generally, you cannot just go and start a war somewhere or, or go and attack a ruler and rebel and try to get back this and that. Because if the corruption that is caused from that is greater, the, the mafsada is greater than the maslaha, then should you do it? Then you don't do it. That's even with enjoining the good and forbidding the evil. If you see an evil, you see someone doing an evil. But if you go and enjoin the good and forbid the evil upon that person, you stop the evil, it's going to create an even bigger evil, then you're not supposed to go and stop that evil. Ibn Taymiyyah or Ibn Qayyim, they mentioned an example along the lines of, if you see some people sat together on a table somewhere, sat together drinking alcohol. Evil. You, maybe you, there's a group of you, you can stop them. You can grab all of their bottles, smash them, stop them from drinking alcohol. You can do it. You can enjoy the good, or you can uh, tell them, stop now or else, and they all stop and they get rid of their bottles. You could do it. But by doing that, these people, drunkards, sitting there drinking alcohol, now you've stopped them, you've taken the alcohol away, so now they've got nothing to do, they get up and they go start throwing stones in people's houses, go and loot a shop, they go preoccupy their time with something else, instead of sitting around on their alcohol. So now, the end result which has occurred from you stopping them doing this, is worse than what they were doing. Now they're going throwing rocks in people's houses, maybe injuring people, robbing stores. They're going out and doing all kinds of other things, which are even worse than what they were doing first, just sat there. So now, it was an example to that nature. Ibn Qayyim said in that case, you wouldn't enjoin the good for them in that case, because the corruption which arises is greater than the good of enjoining the good in that situation. So now with these kinds of territorial disputes, you have to look into these affairs, or not you, but the leaders have to look into these affairs. The rulers have to look into these affairs. Some territory of a land has been taken, it's not that easy, let's just go and fight. It's not that easy. If it was that easy, then look at the situation in Palestine. 
It's not that easy that just pick up stones and this and that and go and fight. It is upon the rulers to examine and to look and to analyze and to judge the situations carefully. If the corruption is going to be great and bloodshed, then what purpose and what benefit have you got from trying to retreat that land right now? And with all these things, especially if it is the kuffar that have taken the land, in those kinds of situations, the ummah firstly needs to look at themselves, as the scholars say. What we've been talking about, land has been taken from you by the kuffar, and you want to go and fight, yet these people who are going to go fight, don't even pray five times a day, mashallah. So you need to look at the ummah returning back to their religion for strength. Otherwise, these weaknesses, they occur. The weakness in the ummah occurs. And that's why it's not about the worldly affairs. As Shaykh Al-Tameen said, when you see all these calamities going on, the kuffar doing this and the kuffar doing that, and everybody's talking about this person and that person, and this kafir and that kafir, and this powerful man and that country, and all these things the kuffar are doing, Shaykh Al-Tameen said, don't become narrow-minded. Don't just sit there and say the kuffar this and the kuffar that and the kuffar are doing this to us and all these things, kuffar, kuffar. He said that's one thing. Yes, the kuffar are doing this and that and we know the kuffar and their plots, that's one thing. He said don't forget the other side. Don't just become engrossed, kuffar, kuffar, kuffar. And you don't even look at the fact that the ummah, so much of it, are upon aqidah which is completely bad. Going around doing tawaf around graves, not praying five times a day. The shaykh, as shaykh al said, when weakness occurs in the ummah, and you see that the kuffar are overcoming you in affairs, there are two things. One, yes, the kuffar and their plots and plans and what they are doing. But secondly, he said, another ashariya. You look at the affair from the shari point of view. Which is that we as an ummah, as the Muslims, are we upholding our religion? Because if we're not upholding our religion, we're not upon the correct aqidah, we're upon weakness, and the ummah is upon weakness, then that is one of the reasons why everything is occurring too. So don't just sit there and say, kufar, 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 and yet this country of people, they don't even pray, they're upon false aqidah, they go to tawaf around graves, you need to look at that too. There's no point just saying kuffar, kuffar, kuffar. That is one side of it. The kuffar, they plot and they plan, and we know everything in the Quran and the Sunnah. But then the other side, don't forget about yourself and examining your own situation too. Rectification is going to come from within. There's no point saying like the Ikhwan al-Muslimin, let's go and demonstrate outside the embassy. You can go and demonstrate all day long and miss all of your prayers, mashaAllah. Then what have you achieved? It is not like that. These are from the ideas of the Ikhwan al-Muslimin every time. This person, that person, we need to go and demonstrate against this embassy and that country. These are from their ways and their methodologies. The person upon sunnah thinks carefully about these affairs, balances things up, looks at his own situation and the situation of the ummah to recognize what is occurring. So as Shaykh al said, remember both things. It's not that easy. They've done this and they've oppressed us. Ibn Taymiyyah said, if somebody's oppressed you, one of the things you do need to look at is yourself and what have you been doing? Have you done something? Maybe the decree was that oppression occurred to you then because of something you've been up to yourself. So there are many factors. It's not simple. They've taken the land. Can we go fight? The answer, no. Not that simple. The rulers will look and examine these affairs. We'll have to stop there. Pray 8.30. Go on. Uh, the difference between the taqwa of Allah and the fear, fearing Allah. <coughs> taqwa, the definition of taqwa, fearing is one part of it. Because taqwa, it is that you fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so you stay away from the sins, and that you have hope in the mercy of Allah and the reward of Allah, so you do the commandments and the sunnah. All of that is taqwa. That you fulfill the commandments, desiring the reward, and you stay away from the prohibitions, fearing the punishment. That's taqwa. So hof min Allah, it's a part of taqwa.
In the winter, you know then, of course, the times are very close. Everything from Fajr to Maghrib is done in less than 10 hours. From 7 a.m. till 5 p.m., uh, Fajr to Maghrib is all done. In some mosques, they pray Isha as soon as it comes in, 6.30. So within 11 and a half hours, not even full 12 hours, maybe they pray Fajr at 7 a.m. in the mosque, in some mosques, and they pray Isha at 6.30 p.m. Not even 12 hours, and all of the prayers are fitted in. 12 hours out of the 24 of the day, only half of the day all of your prayers fit in. It becomes tight in the winter. But in those kinds of circumstances, one of the things that you could do, we know that establishing the five prayers in their times is an obligation. You must pray the prayers in their time. The time is the most important factor from the conditions of the prayer. But when it becomes so tight and somebody's working and they only get a dinner hour, a lunch hour, or a break in the afternoon, one of the things that you could do is what they call al-jama' as-sur, which is combining the prayers, but you're not really combining. How? They say, for example, in the winter here, maybe dhuhr time starts at midday or something, quarter past twelve midday, and finishes maybe one thirty, And asr starts at one thirty. So they say, what you can do is pray your dhuhr, Get a break or something at one till uh, or one fifteen till one forty-five. Your lunch hour. Pray your dhuhr at one fifteen because the time finishes at one thirty. So you're praying in its time. By the time you finish that, barely a few minutes, and then you can pray your asr straight away at one thirty-two, one thirty-three. That's in its time. Somebody looks at you; they might think, "Have you just gone and combined your prayers?" You were gone for 10 minutes, you went at 120, 125, you come back 140, you pray Dhuhr and Asr. You have, but you've prayed each one of them actually in its time. They call this a jam suri it's allowed for certain, well, it's not an issue, it's permissible. But they mention it, for example, a woman who was on uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the bleeding, which is not the menstrual bleeding, al-istihaba. Uh, what do you call it? I forgot the ble- when a woman has the menstruation, the, the period, every month, but then sometimes outside of that period, outside of the period, there may be other blood which exits or something which isn't from her period. Then in that case, the woman is supposed to carry on praying, but just make wudu every salah. It becomes difficult then, if you have to keep uh, making ghusl, making wudu, those kinds of things. So the scholars say, do that. You only have to purify yourself three times a day instead of five. Because purify yourself for Fajr, and then purify yourself for Dhuhr and Asr once. Pray Dhuhr at the end time, and then as soon as that finishes, Asr has started. So that's something a person could think about when you're at work in the winter, take your lunch hour, so that it overlaps the end of Dhuhr and the beginning of Asr. Same with people who are at school, schools, colleges, you could try and work out those kinds of things in the lunch hour. Lunch hour is usually where Dhuhr is going to end and Asr is going to start in the winter for most people. Work out something like that because it is not permissible to, uh, to not pray and then say because of the difficulty in times, I'm just going to pray all of my prayers when I get home. You can't do that type of uh, combining. That kind of combining doesn't even exist if you're traveling. You can't come back home and then pray Dhuhr, Asr, Maghrib, Isha, all combine four prayers at once. That is not permissible. You have to work something out. Maybe your uh, lunch hour doesn't overlap. So then ask your uh, employer, ask him, can I change it slightly by 15 minutes this way or that way? So you can overlap Dhuhr and Asr. And then Maghrib, it's okay. Maybe that is going to be afterwards when you finish. So you have to try and work out something. It's not possible for the winter. The whole of the winter to just be combining at the end, missing your dhuhr and asr every day because of work or this or that, and then praying it at maghrib time or isha time every evening. Do something like that. Speak to your employers, work out your lunch hours. These are uh, you know, certain things you have to try and get some solutions to. It isn't a possibility or an option to keep missing the prayers throughout winter. And for those who are at school as well, try and work out the lunch hour, 
try and work out sometimes like that, maybe even for those school kids, they finish at 3 o'clock, the dhuhr can be prayed in the lunch hour, the asr can still be prayed after school. Maghrib in the winter here comes in, maybe earliest 3.40, 3.45, 4 o'clock. So there are ways around it. You have to look at things carefully, work out your schedules carefully and do it. Even if it means that as soon as you finish work, you haven't got time to come home and pray. If you have to pray right there outside of your work building on the pavement, so be it. You prayed your prayer in its time. All of the land, all of the land is pure. Nobody has to be thinking, but I haven't got my musalla with me. You can pray on the street, it's clean, it's pure, it rains, everything is washed away. All of the land is pure. You don't need a, a, the musalla, that you have to pray on top of it. It's not even a sunnah, they never used to have these things, they came afterwards. It's pure, pray where you want on the floor. So, do those things and work those kinds of things out for the winter, so that you may uphold your obligations. Work and these things and life is short. But your actions, that's what is going to be recorded for you till the day of judgment. So inshallah ta'ala, may Allah make it easy for everybody. We'll have to stop there. The prayer is in now. Inshallah, we'll resume in two weeks.